You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ovation Fertility, a leader in the field of IVF lab services. Ovation partners with some of America's leading fertility specialists to provide a range of services to support fertility treatment, including fertility testing, IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, genetic testing, and long-term storage of reproductive material. You can learn more about Ovation at OvationFertility.com. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I have my two amazing, stunning, talented co-hosts, Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. And Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. How are y'all doing? Doing great. Good. Having fun talking to you guys today. Good stuff. Carrie, you've been out in your yard? I have. So our yard is kind of our front yard, especially like our backyard is pretty well contained and like, you know, the, everything is alive. Everything's on an irrigation system, which here in Vegas, if you don't have an irrigation drip system, you are, anything green is no long, is not green for very long. For our listeners right now, we're recording in January. So I'm wondering (laughs) how much green you got, Carrie. Yeah, tell me, because we have nothing green where I live. We're nothing. brown world too. <laughs> so, yeah. like all of my bushes out front are green. All of my backyard is totally green with the exception of my yellow bells, which are sticks right now. But all my, like my trees are green. I have bay laurels and podocarpus and mastic and like all those, those are all green. My side vines with the orange jubilee, those are green. They're not flowering, but green. My lilies are really short and my society garlic are... So you have lilies growing right now in January? Well, I mean, they just got their haircut. And so all it is, is maybe a three inch sprout of green. The actual flower won't come up for another several months, but... Oh, okay. Gotcha. They're not blooming. They're just growing. They're just growing. Yeah, Yeah. But they don't look like a dead plant right now. I understood the words green, garlic, (laughs) (laughs) lily... And the rest was like the Charlie Brown. <laughs> so my my bay laurels, like that's where you what get that? bay leaves. You get bay leaves that you cook with. Off okay. Of that's what wow. Okay. Hey, talking food, like I get. I have I have a ton of rosemary bushes all out front, and those are all green because the little they're bees, always green. They're always yeah. green. The bees are very happy, happily buzzing around them. But I'm trying to figure out how to reset my front yard because right now it kind of looks like somebody just said, here, we're going to put 10 plants in your front yard. And they just threw out a bunch of marbles and everywhere a marble landed, they just planted. (laughs) There's no rhyme or reason. And so I have been walking around my neighborhood and I'm actually kind of grateful that nobody has called the cops on me because I'm standing there with a pen in my mouth, staring at these various front yards and then I'll move to the next one. And I'm like, I'm going to get picked up for loitering here watching other people's plants grow. I have a question. So I got this phone call from like, we have this yard service that essentially like sprays and makes sure we don't have like, bugs and stuff yeah. like this, you know, like yeah. 
good bugs, but not the bad bugs. Like ashworms okay. or something like that. Sure. Bad sure. Stuff. Yeah. We'll go with that. Okay. <laughs> things that eat up the green things. All right. Yes. So again, not my cup of tea. So they're calling around. They're wanting to know, do I want to do a top dressing and irrigation? So I get irrigation. Yeah. But those are holes. Irrigation is holes. Top dressing is where they they have this combination of stuff that puts extra soil out. So you have to understand where I live, six inches down, you are in limestone. Like it is like, really, we are on rock. Let me tell you, you know, build your house on a rock. We did that. No basements there, huh? No basements, no basements. That does not happen here very often. So what, what are your professional opinions on top dressing and aeration? Yes and yes, I think. So my front yard is 100% rock with plants growing out of it. And my backyard is a combination of rocks and fake grass because I live in Vegas and there is a drought all the time. And so I know what aeration is because I remember when I was a kid and they did that, the elementary school, I remember seeing all these little holes because you had the dirt come out and I was like, what dog came and pooped all over the (laughs) Because I had no idea what it was. Um, And so I have zero opinion because I don't even know what top dressing is because soil, like soil here is bad. If you want good soil, you put it specifically in the pot and you have to amend it. Like your job depends on it because otherwise your plants die. Didn't it make the roots grow better? It makes your grass grow deeper and all that. That's something I was was trying to explain to me. So, And I would guess top dressing. I don't know what that would be. If it would be just like... I think it's adding a layer of soil because it it eventually erodes and stuff like that. So Hmm. I I think I'm going to try it out for my front yard this year and see if it creates the miracle he's describing. And then maybe I'll fork out for the backyard next year. So when you say top dressing, I am envisioning like the trees and bushes in your front yard with cute little aprons and <laughs> maybe some hats, um, like dressing. a jacket here and there of like dressed foliage. Yeah. On that note, let, let's do a question of the day. <laughs> Enough about top dressing. All right. So first of all, I love your podcast. and I've learned so much by listening as I have started my fertility journey. I am 34 and just went through my first IUI cycle. The waiting is killing me to test for a pregnancy. Are there any early signs of pregnancy that I can look out for? I know statistically it takes three to four cycles to get pregnant via IUI. And I am hopeful that it'll work for my wife and I. I worry a lot about things I find on the internet. Any advice on not... Google searching symptoms and being patient with my body. So part of the reason we started this is because all of us were getting frustrated with Dr. Google and not having any great resource to send our patients to. So I'm really glad that you asked that because it means that we are at least that chunk of our goal. Um, With respects to early signs of pregnancy, everybody's different. Some people feel 100% normal, unchanged, no different. Other people can tell you you know, within a few days of like, oh, my sense of smell is heightened or my boobs are bigger or more tender or gastric reflux, like acid burning feeling in your stomach. Like those are all kind of the more common ones that when someone has symptoms early, but a lot of times people don't feel any different and you just have to wait it out. That's the name of the game of everything we do is hurry up and wait. Well, and particularly in the first few days, because I think what she's saying is between the time 
the transfer happens and the pregnancy test. The infamous two-week wait. You got a lot of stuff circulating through your body then. And you know, in reality, most people don't really experience, in my experience, don't have symptoms really until about six weeks. And that's when breast tenderness hits and things like that. But I was reminded this week of a patient that I had a few years ago that showed up because her Clomid wasn't working and she wasn't ovulating. So we were doing an exam on her and we did a scan on her and it turned out she had a 14-week pregnancy and didn't realize it. So everybody's a little different in terms of picking up on those subtle symptoms that you may or may not have. So there may be the difference in just different people and what they focus on. And also remember, not only is every person different, but every pregnancy is different. For our listeners, if you've been pregnant before and you had the symptoms or hadn't symptoms, the next time may or may not be the same. We all understand that two-week wait is, it's painful. We've been there. (laughs) Yes, we we have been there. (laughs) We've been there personally and we've been there professionally. And so we are there with you in spirit, you know, rooting you on. And we know it's hard, but it's just one of those things that wait for your pregnancy test and and then you'll get your answers. Another thing I wanted to mention was, I know sometimes people get a little, the listener made a comment about it takes three to four times for an IUI to work. And I would like to rephrase that to something that I think is a little bit more correct is that most people who are going to get pregnant with an IUI are going to do so within the three, first three to four cycles. That's a different statement than that it takes three to four times for it to work. So like I said, I just want to make sure we got that kind of corrected and a little bit more precise. If you've never played backgammon, those two weeks, it's a really good time to learn because that's what my husband and I did for the two weeks while we were waiting is a lot of backgammon. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. Well, talking about kind of basic fertility stuff, we are going to get back to the basics today. All right. And talk about the basic fertility evaluation, what's involved, what's a good idea, and maybe some things that we should possibly stay away from. So... Abby, when you have somebody coming in and just the basic garden variety, we've been trying to get pregnant for a blank number of years, where do you start? So, you know, kind of the focus initially is what's the problem and and can we figure out what the problem is? And, And, you know, sometimes we can't, but sort of the real basic things, and we can maybe just start out and talk individually about each one, would be a tubal assessment on a female. But you've got to have eggs, you got to have sperm, but you also have to have open tubes. Those are like tunnels that connect the egg and the sperm. There's different ways to evaluate the tubes. Um, you can do a hysterosalpingogram, which is probably the more common test. It's a test done through a radiologist. It's an x-ray test. And anytime we do any kind of procedure on a woman who's trying to get pregnant, we really want to make sure that we don't do it at a time when you could have a baby in there. So we typically do it right after your menstrual cycle ends, but before you ovulate, sort of in that second week of your cycle. And so for most of our patients, they'll call our office and say, okay, my period's just started. We need to get this test scheduled. And so we schedule it at an outpatient x-ray center. And essentially what the radiologist would do in that situation, you would come in They would put a speculum in just like you're going to have a pelvic exam. They thread a little catheter up through the cervical canal and they inject dye, radioopaque dye through the fallopian tube. So it's not radioactive. You're not going to glow when you leave or anything, Mm -hmm. but it's just radioopaque. And so they basically put that dye in the empty spaces inside the uterus and the empty spaces inside the fallopian tubes. And they'll usually make like three or four or five still pictures as the dye percolates through your cavity and through your fallopian tubes. And so if it's a well done HSG, 
we can get a pretty good look at the uterine cavity itself to make sure it's normal in shape, make sure that there's not polyps or fibroids there. And we can also get a good look at the fallopian tubes and make sure they're open. Sometimes if your uterus doesn't cooperate, sometimes we don't get the greatest pictures of the cavity. And so for that test, if we're trying to look just at the cavity, sometimes we'll do something called a saline sonogram. And that's basically a similar type procedure in that we put fluid up inside the cavity, but it's different in that it's an ultrasound test. And it's generally done, I know for most of us, we do them in our offices. Some OBGYNs may send you outside to somebody else to do it. But essentially water is put up inside the cavity and we typically can get a little bit better look at the cavity. We can measure polyps, we can measure the size of them and where they are and fibroids. So for us, it's a little bit better to see the cavity. And in some practices, not every Everybody does this, but sometimes you can actually put air through the fallopian tubes and see those bubbles percolate through the tubes and determine whether or not the fallopian tubes are open. So those are kind of the two main tests that we use to look at the fallopian tubes. Carrie, when do you use the hycosi, which is the bubbles through the fallopian tubes versus an HSG? So I tend to use the hycosi kind of as a default because most of my patients... I have found tolerate it better than the HSG. Like the HSG is a very valuable test, but it hurts like a mofo. Um, <laughs> yes, it does. I can, well, I can, I'm a witness to I, that. At least from the feedback that I get from my patients. Now that may not be true everywhere, but that is pretty consistent feedback for me. So in one of my prior practices, we did our own HSGs in the office. Mm-hmm. And what I can say is that there are some people that it does hurt There are a lot of people that it does not, that unfortunately you don't know who you're going to be until you're in the middle of it. And it's generally a really bad cramp that lasts for a few minutes. So it's not something that is usually going to kind of ruin your day per se. Yeah, it's not it's not necessarily to be feared, but I also feel like there is a difference as to who's doing it because yeah. when I was in training, like we we had the setup and so we would be able to do it. Now out in practice, I don't have the fluoroscopy in my office. And so I have to rely on the radiologists and they get good pictures. But I think the technique and just the familiarity with what you have to do to get those pictures and do the doing the pelvic exam, doing the speculum exam on a table that's not really built for it. I think a lot of that contributes to patient comfort. So at this point, the patients that I will order an HSG on are the ones where I already have some inkling that there's a tubal abnormality. If we see something abnormal on their day three ultrasound, and I'm worried about a hydrocalpinx or swollen tubes that may need to come out, those patients I will send for an HSG. If I have someone who's had Um, their tubes tied, and then the tubal reversal happen. I'll send them for an HSG because I'm looking not only at is there spill from from the tubes, but I'm also anticipating that there's a little bit more damage. And it's unusual that I'll have to send somebody for both a HICOC and an HCG. You know, I I do that very rarely. HSG. I don't remember what it, I said. HCG. You did. <laughs> I said all the uh, I heard HSG, but maybe you said HCG. Whatever. <laughs> you, you See, know, even we messed this up. <laughs> um, but I will. I'll send for those when there's a specific set of information that I'm looking for. But we tend to do more hycoses. One last thing I'll just throw in: having I don't know if during your experiences and you had an HSG, but I've had one done. I've been on the other side of the bed rail, and and it was done by a reproductive endocrinologist. And I would say. It was pretty painful for about five, 10 minutes. I mean, it felt like really bad menstrual cramps for just a few minutes, but then it passed pretty quickly. And so, you know, I kind of describe it to patients is 
as if you wouldn't want to have it done every single month, but you know, one time, you know, check the box off and be done with it. We don't do really high cost size in our practice. I find a lot of value in the HSG. Not only are we looking to make sure that the fallopian tubes look open, but also making sure we don't have any evidence of those hydrocell pinks that Carrie mentioned. If you have fallopian tubes that are bad enough that you're seeing them on ultrasound, <laughs> you almost don't need an HSG because they're so big hydros that that's, that's diagnostic upon itself. But that's the neat thing is that, you know, there really is an art to medicine and, and there's going to be you know, different tacks and in different locations for different purposes. So kind of moving on from fallopian tubes and kind of checking out the lining of the uterus with the saline ultrasound, Abby, you had mentioned checking out eggs. What is one of your tests that you do for eggs? So I think the test du jour that we probably all do is anti-mullerian hormone or AMH. It's the best guess of kind of the pool of eggs that you have and kind of if you fit on the reproductive spectrum with your peers. Um, it doesn't tell you you have like 5,360 eggs or anything, but it'll basically tell you you know, if you're 34 and you, you know, you should have an AMH over a certain number. And that kind of gives us a sense that, you know, we can be confident as best we can with that test that, that your egg pool is good. So that's probably the number one test. Carrie, is there another test that you would do with that? I um, always order the antral follicle count. So that's an ultrasound that's done on the third day of your period. Now, an AMH is something that can easily be ordered anywhere, anytime by anyone. Um, and so this is one that the OBGYNs are able to get readily, pretty readily because they do not have to have anything special besides just ordering the lab test. The follicle count's a little bit different because it's done by typically a transvaginal ultrasound because that allows us to get a little closer to the ovaries and get some more accurate information. But usually that information only comes when you're sitting in a fertility office because the regular radiology and general OBGYNs, they just mm -hmm. don't spend time training on how to get these counts accurately. And these counts can make or break our world. And so it's a vaginal ultrasound. And what it looks for is identifying on the ovaries, how many eggs are there and available to grow at the beginning of any given month. So you've got all these eggs that are deep in storage. They cannot be seen. That's what the AMH or anti-mullerian hormone measures. The follicle count measures how many of those have been pulled out of storage and are out on the shelf a little bit more accessible. And so a count is hopefully somewhere between 10 and 20. If someone's a little bit older or they've had chemotherapy or surgeries on their ovary, we expect it to be on the lower side. But that really helps us to know what is available so that when we start doing treatment, we know how to dose medication. That's at least a part of it. And we have a reasonable idea of what to expect because if someone has a follicle count of four, they're very unlikely to ever get an egg retrieval that yields a dozen eggs. And so it's helpful to have those expectations discussed before we get to the point of treatment. Susan, what do you like to do for eggs? So I will round out the trifecta <laughs> and um, talk a little bit about FSH and estradiol. So FSH is follicle stimulating hormone and FSH is the hormone the brain produces that tells the ovaries what to do. And estradiol is what the ovaries produce that talks back to the brain. And FSH gives us more information on egg quality. It does have some overlap with quantity, just like AMH does that kind of vice versa. But I kind of think of it as the best marker we have other than age as to how your eggs appear quality-wise. 
So not everybody's quality is going to be the same. General rule of thumb, I like an FSH less than 10. Some of it's going to depend on your particular lab that you use. And there's going to be some variability. I know some at one point in my career on a different lab, we considered normal less than 12. It, it Like I said, there, there's going to be some gray lines in there. But it's something that gives us an idea of how much time do we have? When we're putting all of these things together, I think that's where we get the best picture. You know, the mm-hmm. AMH, the antral follicle count, the FSH and estradiol, and your age put all together, it gives us an idea of, we all know you wanted to be pregnant yesterday because that's all of our patients. You know, are we looking at like, oh my goodness, we need to make this happen in the next three to six months or, you know, we can take our time a little bit more and gradually get into things if that's your desire. And just to interject one thing, Susan, I echo what you say about, you know, it's really the whole picture. And one of our listeners asked the question earlier about when should I Google and when should I not? This is a time not to Google because, you know, you see a range of AMH that's really wide. You see a range of FSH, but it really takes your doctor to really kind of put all the pieces of the puzzle together to come up with the whole picture. Um, You know, kind of a lower AMH with maybe a really good antral follicle count, you know, maybe not be quite as bad as both being low. And so it's really, and, and like Susan said, we look at your age. So there's a lot of different factors we factor in when we're talking to you and about, you know, kind of what your chances are for fertility. Of course, knowing that none of us have a crystal ball and we can't tell you exactly what's going to happen, but we can kind of give you a better idea of whether, you know, you need to really worry about it right now or whether we can take it a little slower. Exactly, exactly. So kind of skipping over to the guy section of the conversation, Carrie, what do we do to check out the swimmers? <laughs> we make them ejaculate into a cup and then we give it to somebody else to look at their sperm. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that that at the heart of it is, is very much what we're doing. And so typically instructions we give guys ahead of time is to abstain from any ejaculation for about two to five days. And this is where I always tell people more is not better. Like, don't abstain from ejaculating for three to four weeks in the thought of, I'm going to have the best swimmers ever. That does not make Olympic swimmers. That makes mutants. Um, (laughs) No, I am not talking about you're going to have a mutant child if you haven't ejaculated for three weeks and then your partner gets pregnant. But what it does mean is that oftentimes when someone has been not ejaculating in an effort to save up, and then we do the semen analysis, we see that the appearance is perhaps a little bit more abnormal than we would otherwise anticipate. And the numbers are a little bit more off. So the numbers that we're looking for, you're looking at the total volume. This is where if you happen to spill on the way to getting in the cup, let the person know because they make a note about that. Most of the time, that doesn't matter. And the reason it doesn't matter is because we look at a concentration And so that means that whether you have a very tiny amount of ejaculate or a more normal amount of ejaculate, you know how many millions of sperm there are per milliliter of fluid. And so that's what helps take some of the human error part of this out. We look at the percent that are moving and we look at the percent that have a normal appearance. The other things that we're going to take into account are going to be, is there a really high viscosity in there? Meaning is the sample really sticky? So Sperm is delivered as a gel. And so that helps move it from his body to her body. And then as soon as that gel gets to her body, very shortly after it's ejaculated, it starts to dissolve into a liquid. So think about you made some lime jello 
You put it in the fridge and it congealed. Oh, Carrie, yeah. these food analogies, I don't know. I don't know if we want to use those. <laughs> Jello? I mean, lime, lime, lemon, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I, well, cherry wouldn't be good either. Not cherry's a bad, yeah. Blackberry, that would be good. Lime, either. because I feel like I personally, if, if I was going to eat Jello, I would choose to eat cherry Jello and I would not want my example of ejaculate in my mind. For that, so I figure lime jello is no, just clear jello. How about that? <laughs> if your sperm is the color of lime jello, please let your nearest know. Um, but if you you have this gel like consistency, might have some tubal damage associated. So <laughs> got a lot of damage associated. We digress. Yeah, <laughs> worry about okay, it. Okay, sorry, Carrie. She is trying really hard to keep going here. We're gonna shut up, Carrie. You go ahead. Yeah, whatever. I, I don't believe that for a minute. Let's see what other foods I can ruin for you today. Um, so the that gel dissolves and the sperm is able to freely swim away and go to where it needs to. And so sometimes the liquefaction time or that dissolving time is really prolonged. We look at the progression of the cells. Like you just don't want sperm that are moving. You want sperm that are moving in a forward motion, like doing donuts in the parking lot, not helpful. You need them to be swimming forward. So those are the types of things we look at a semen analysis. And what would you just say to somebody that says, Carrie, how come you've not done a postcoital test on me? Or how come you haven't done antisperm antibodies or sperm penetration assay? What would you say to that? I would say I try to limit my tests to things that are helpful. (laughs) (laughs) So the things Abby just described were things that at least in mine and Carrie's experience where things we <laughs> okay, learned. Okay, Susan, you're making me feel really old here. No, no, it's just <laughs> we, 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 all trained, we all trained in, in a little different bit different decades. time periods. And <laughs> those things have been out of favor for long enough that really you don't, like there, there really isn't a question on, you know, is this a gray zone? Those no, things it's not really, really don't. We don't do those. We don't, we do, don't those do those anymore. anymore. Exactly, exactly. Um, So as reproductive endocrinologists, we really need to have the entire puzzle put together to be able to give our patients the best tools, the best way to figure out what's going to be the best way for you to get pregnant. And we occasionally have individuals whose partners are a little reluctant to do a semen analysis. What are some of y'all's words of advice or other resources to help a male partner join the game in, in getting us that information? I think men have this vision of coming in this fertility clinic and walking into a bathroom right off the waiting room where 30 people are watching him go in the bathroom and collect. And I think a lot of men are really scared that they're the problem. And I say the problem in quotes because it's not really, it's a couple's issue. It's not a male or a female issue, but I think they don't want to be the one that's causing the problem. And I think it's just very awkward for them. Men don't go to doctors much in there between the age of 20 and 40 for many things. And they, unlike women, they feel very awkward going to the doctor. So some of the ways we try and kind of coax men to leave specimens is they can do it at home. As long as they can get it to our office within an hour, we let them collect at home. I try and reassure them that probably every guy sitting in the waiting room has done the same exact thing. They know what you're going through. They're all there for the same reasons. You know, try and normalize it a little bit. So it's it's just part of what we do. It's not something to judge you on your character as a person. You know, it's just, we just need to know that information just to give us a better idea of what the next step would be for the couple. Any words of advice, Carrie? I'm trying to think of anything that will not get me into trouble. And I'm really not certain that it's going to happen. It depends on the patient because in some ways it's a, you know, you got to check everything because 
If you don't, you can miss something. And this is in sperm abnormalities really have the potential to change what we do and how we do it. Um, sometimes we'll tell them like, look, I'm asking you for very little compared to what your partner's going through. Throw me a bone here. And <laughs> you two were the teenage boys in this scenario, <laughs> not me. And, and But you had the Freudian slip though. <laughs> yeah, but you heard it. Um, so, and, and we also offer like, Hey, you can always come to our lab and do it where it's a little bit more comfortable, collect it home, drop it off, you know, and, and try and alleviate some of the concerns. But part of the unknown is what is so scary. Once it's known, it becomes less scary because you start to have a plan of what you're going to do with it. So, so another thing that I can offer to my patients is we, as most of our listeners know, I have a clinic that's about three hours from where my primary clinic is. And so traversing that distance is sometimes an issue. And so we um, occasionally use a company called Reprosource that actually offers a mail order kit where guys can collect at home and then the sperm can be safely shipped to their location. And there's a special media that it's in that, that allows the sperm to like stay alive and we can tell the viability and, and that type of thing. The one thing I do like to kind of I don't want to say worn away from, but sometimes I'll have patients who have purchased an over-the-counter semen analysis kit and it essentially says you have sperm or you don't have sperm. It's important for our listeners to know that having sperm and not having sperm, yes, those are obviously very important distinctions, but how much sperm there are mm -hmm. and how well they're moving can make a big difference on whether we need to do things like IUI or need to do something like IVF because we we have sperm, but just not enough to probably happen within your own uterus and body. So that's something that I find is important. So outside of kind of the big three, egg sperm and uh, fallopian tubes, are there some other maybe blood tests or saliva tests or things like this that you would routinely do? I consider them like my preconceptual labs. Invitae would be the big one. And, and Invitae is a, is a company. There's different companies that do this, but it's called an expanded carrier screening test. And I tell you, I just every day I marvel at all the things that I find that my patients carry and that I carry too, that we had no idea. I just literally had somebody yesterday who he had a genetic condition that basically made him not have any sperm. So we tested the wife just to make sure that she wouldn't have that condition. She didn't have that condition, but she carried one other significant condition. And then it turns out they both shared another condition that they had no idea about. I mean, they they had tons of things that shouldn't have matched and did. So, you know, we're talking to them about doing in vitro fertilization and really, uh, I mean, we probably would have been doing that anyway, but we wouldn't have known to check for that particular condition that could be really life-threatening and, and really significantly affect the life of their child. And so the advantage of expanded care screening is that we do the same test on every single person regardless of ethnicity, race, et cetera. And so, you know, we, we just assume that we're all kind of mutts, that we don't know anything about our family ancestry, which in reality, even if you know who your grandparents are, you don't really know what they carry, you know. And so it's really helpful because about one in 550 couples we find have the same recessive trait, just like this couple I described that I looked at their information yesterday. And most people would say, oh, but I don't have any symptoms. I feel just fine. Well, if you carry most of these things, you don't have symptoms. So there's no way that you would know it. And so our goal is to have you have 
not only get pregnant, but have a healthy pregnancy, as Susan alluded to. And this is a way to really make sure that your child doesn't have some sort of just terrible condition that could limit their life or significantly cause issues for them. And so I really try and talk almost everybody into this test because it's I try, I try not to coerce my patients too much, but I think this is a really important test because when you find that both couples, both members of the couple carry the same thing, it's a big deal usually. And what I tell people is it doesn't, even if y'all are a match, it doesn't mean that we can't have babies. It just means we need to have another conversation. And what we do with that information can vary from couple to couple. It's an important thing for you to kind of really get the full picture of what's going on for you. It's important to remember that everything that we're doing is not just for a positive pregnancy test. It's for the healthy live birth afterwards. It's part of the reason why we talk about single embryo transfers and avoiding twins and multiple pregnancies. It's why we do the genetic testing ahead of time. It's why the other testing that we do includes things like checking to see if you're diabetic, if you have thyroid problems, if you have anemia, all of the the things that are going to contribute to your general health, which some of them overlap and have fertility implications as well. But Many of them, you know, if you're a diabetic, that increases your risk of miscarriage. It increases your risk of having a baby with birth defects. But if you have uncontrolled sugars, that's not good for your body either. And so we want to check all of that general stuff ahead of time, make sure there's no infection so that we are doing the best by you and your family as we help you build your family. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to talk about one more thing that our patients tend to get like very stuck on. It's blood type. It seems very simple, but what's important about blood type and what's not important about blood type? It's important that you have it. (laughs) That is the most important thing about blood. You need to have it. If you are severely anemic, it's a problem. That's true. Yeah. And the positive and negative part we look at, I mean, you don't typically interview your future husband and say, what's your blood type? But generally, if you're negative, so if you have a negative blood type, it doesn't matter if you're A, B, O, A, B, whatever. If you have a negative blood type and your husband has a positive blood type, then once you make a baby together, there's a chance that if the baby has his blood type, the positive type blood, that it can mix with your blood and it can cause issues in pregnancy. So it's it's really a pretty simple fix, though, if it turns out that that's the case. Your obstetrician will give you a shot called Rogam, uh, about 28 weeks of pregnancy, and also at the time of delivery. And sort of the Rogam kind of intercepts any red blood cells that your baby may share with you. Because if you don't get Rogam, then what can happen is your body can make almost like little army men that can attack either the pregnancy you have or more commonly the pregnancies in the future that you may have that have that positive blood type. So it's a pretty easy problem to fix. Um, I think the only time we really focus on it a lot and talk about it a lot with patients is if they're going to choose donor sperm. So if they're going to try and get pregnant with donor sperm, if they have a negative blood type, I would prefer that they also choose a donor that has a negative blood type because then they don't have to worry about that. But if you have a partner that's positive and you're negative, it can still be fixable. I know that's what Abby usually recommends. I let patients use positive or negative. When you're using donor sperm, you know if the donor has positive or negative blood type. So you just need to let your obstetrician know so that when you are going through your actual pregnancy, you can get that Rogam injection if you need it and that type of thing. So, well, I think this has been a great conversation about kind of the basic fertility evaluation. To our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. So hop on and leave us a like or a follow and say hello. 
You can also visit us on fertility.sunsensor.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment or even leave us an episode idea. So don't hold back. We would love to hear from you. And as always, this is intended for entertainment value. Please don't replace this as advice from your own personal physician. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. We will see you soon. Tune in next week for more. Bye. Bye. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Theralogics. Theralogics reproductive health supplements are formulated for both women and men. These products are designed by doctors and backed by science and are recommended by the majority of IVF health clinics in the U.S. Theralogics fertility supplements are independently tested and certified by NSF International to ensure content purity, accuracy, and safety. If you're ready to start your family, Theralogics has you covered every step of the way.